source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You can find these verses on page 1012 in your blue pew Bible sitting in front of you. The book of James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together, ask for God's blessing upon us. O Lord, we belong to you in Christ. You have redeemed us. You you own us, Lord. We belong to you, Paul says, because we have been bought with a price. And he says there that We are the temple. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Lord, this is our encouragement that we are part of the new creation, that we have a new self in Christ. From our innermost being flow rivers of living water. No, Lord, we see nonetheless 
the great struggle that we have in our words, especially with those most intimate with us, those closest to us. And so, Lord, we pray that your new creation will extend more and more to take over our hearts and therefore take over our tongues, that all that we are, all that we think, all that we do, and all that we say, more and more, will be conformed to your glory and be used for your glory and be used for good in others' lives. Oh, Lord, may this powerful instrument be dedicated to your kingdom. We rest in you to do this, almighty God, who's able to do exceedingly beyond all that we ask or think. Amen. You just, when you begin reading about the tongue, you kind of start wincing a little bit. You're like me. You, uh, you kind of start thinking, this one's going to hurt a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, the first sin apparently in mankind was the sin of the tongue. As Adam began to make excuses before God, it was the woman that you gave me. And so sin first showed itself out of the mouth. It's interesting when God lists the seven things that he hates in Proverbs 6. He says there's the hand, there's the, the eyes, there's the feet, there's the heart. And three times he says there's the tongue. In Romans, uh, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is brought before God's holiness and he's convicted of his sin and the sin of his people, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It was the sin of his tongue, the sin of his mouth that, that devastated him, that represented every other sin. It's like all of sin was concentrated in that one terrible sin. And this seems to be Paul's emphasis in Romans 3 after stating generally in verses 10 through 12 about the fact that all people have sinned. He gets to the specifics in verse 13. And he quotes three different psalms. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then he just mentions the the feet and the path and the way. But the primary emphasis is, and here's proof enough that everybody has sinned. Here's proof enough that we have all gone by the wayside. Look at what we do with our tongue. Sounds a little rough. The poison of asps. Throat is like an open grave that spills out stench. That's a little rough. Yet he says this is the sin of mankind. Interesting, when Peter is setting forth the glory and the perfection of Jesus' uh, holiness, it becomes not only the example for slaves who are being persecuted or abused in their relationship to their master, but then it also becomes the statement of his purity because in the verses that follow he says, and he bore our sins in his body on the cross. But what is the perfection that's set forth there? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter chapter 2. So here's the purity of the lamb as he offered himself up. His purity was marked by the purity of his tongue. How glorious. He was pure in what he said and what he didn't say. That set him apart as he bore the sin of us who have abused our tongues in such terrible ways. And so later, Peter, in quoting Psalm 34, says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now in this passage, it's a little hard to know whether or not James is talking about teachers the whole time. Though I lean to the position that He's not just talking about teachers, although we'd have to say teachers carry a for, are, are in the forefront. So you might say these sins of the tongue are, are devastating. No matter where they're found, they're especially devastating in the teacher, especially devastating in those who provide leadership for any uh, body of people. And so he begins in that way, not many of you should become teachers, And you kind of say, what? I thought we should gravitate toward that. I thought we should lean in and see. But he's looking at it from a particular standpoint. Don't become a teacher, not many, because if you do, you'll be judged with greater strictness. Why? Because you're using words all the time. Simple. You're going to be a wordsmith. You're going to be speaking a lot. You're in grave danger, period. Just because you're opening your mouth, Darwin, <laughs> or anyone else who teaches. This is, this is the feel of this. Because he says, we stumble in many ways, and he falls in line with so many passages in Scripture and in Jewish thinking and other, uh, other uh, statements as well. Like Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Proverbs 29, who can say, I've made my heart pure, I'm clean from my sin, and many other places. Sin is, of course, universal in this way, but especially difficult is the the sin of the tongue. Because he says, if you don't stumble in what you say, you're a perfect man. By that, he doesn't mean absolutely perfect, but you're a mature person. You've grown up in the faith. And you're able to bridle the whole body. There he uses the word bridle from chapter 1, where he says uh, that we must bridle the tongue in showing that uh, we have a a true religion. If we don't bridle our tongue, we deceive ourselves. We'll get to that uh, further in a minute. So those who reach this point where they rarely stumble or they use their tongues in this mature way, they indicate that they would have this kind of self-control in the whole of their lives to, to bridle his whole body, that is, his whole person in this way. But because the tongue is the most difficult area, teachers run the greatest risk. And it's interesting here, he's, as you follow what he goes on to say, Though, of course, it would include uh, doctrinal error, 
That doesn't seem to be the primary emphasis here. It seems to be moral error, moral, the misuse of the position as a teacher, uh, creating divisions or cliques or power struggles to gain a standing, uh, slander, lying, boasting, defaming others. And the point of many teachers, it seems to be, and men who would stand and preach, it can be that no longer are they concerned to make known Christ and His Word, but it's to establish, and, and, and to establish His kingdom or to make known His kingdom, but itself and its own kingdom uh, that is being set forth. And so the, the passage we read in Matthew 12 is spoken in the context of Jewish leaders defaming Christ. And that's who he's calling a brood of vipers. And, and that's about whom he says, every careless word that man shall speak, he shall give an account in the day of judgment. And so he's really not only talking, perhaps not especially talking about doctrinal error, though it would have terrible effects, but he seems to be speaking of this use of power and position of even flattering your subjects to try to get them to like you, of, of, of altering the word because you're trying to tickle people's ears. These kind of moral and ethical and heart choices of teachers. But then he goes on, as he, he talks about this, he, he talks about bridling the tongue. Now, in this area uh, of Jewish writing, Chirac says, a person may make a slip without intending it or without meaning what they say. Which of us has never sinned by speech? So even in Jewish thinking, it was like, of all things, this is the tendency that we have and therefore the need to bridle it, to bridle the tongue. And it's, indi it's an indication of the need to bridle because he goes immediately into these examples that we put bits into the mouths of horses. We have a rudder on ships. They must have these things or they're not gonna, or they're going to do some terrible things. They're going to do damage. They must have a bridle. They must have control over them or a great power will be unleashed for bad. But he's talking in the first place, I think, in a positive way. Because he says, if a man can bridle his tongue, that's the implication, because he says if he doesn't stumble, then he's also able to bridle his whole body. So the indication is he's, he's bridling his tongue and then able to bridle his body. And you might think, well, is that really true, that, that controlling this one small thing could control the whole? And he says, well, yeah, it's like a bridle on a horse or it's like a rudder on a ship small thing, but it affects the whole. So it gets into this whole area of how a small thing can affect us in a great way for good. Implicit in that, obviously, is it can influence for bad as well. As Proverbs 18.21 says, the power of life and death lies in the hand of the tongue, or uh, life and death literally lies in the hand of the tongue, the power of the tongue. But it can be a force for good. If you bridle the tongue, you're able to bridle the whole. If you bridle the 
the bit, if, the, if you have the bit, then you can control the animal the same way with the ship. And so it can be a wonderful force for good. This is reflected in Proverbs. Uh, the tongue of the righteous, Proverbs 10, 20, is choice silver. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. The positive value of the tongue. 12.20, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. 15.23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good is it? (laughs) 16.24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. And finally, 25.11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So we must see this instrument that God has given us that is so much like Him. It's one of the things in which we are most like God. That He speaks, we speak. It is our speaking that enables us to fellowship with God. That's how critical it is to our being made in His image and being made in a way that we can commune with God. Words are central to our humanity. So this great force for good in your life, why is it so important? And I think what we read in Matthew 12 tells us it, the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. See, it's so connected with what we are and who we are. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil, as Jesus says there. And so it causes us to get to the root of who we are. You're working close to home when you're working on the tongue. You're at home base. You're at command central. The spring, the origin of everything. You have to get to the heart to get to the tongue. And that's why it's so important. That's why working on the tongue affects everything in your life. Because you are forced at this point to cry out for heart change In order for my words to change, my desires and motives must change. My affections must change. My orientation in life must change. My perspective in how I see myself and how I see my mate or my children or my friends, how I see others, it must change. Because the the distance from the heart to the tongue is the shortest distance in the world. Okay, It's like a major beltway, a major, it's like Central Expressway. Well, not like that in Dallas because that's always stopped up, but uh, the way it's supposed to be. It's like those Abbott and Costello movies where uh, Costello is, isn't that the big guy? Costello? Anyway, yeah. So he's, he's at the mantelpiece. And they're running from the, the monster, and suddenly it's a revolving mantelpiece, and it spins, and he's right there with the monster. You know, you like you think you're so far away, yeah, like this. That's what our our heart is like. It just it just flips out, and it's it exposes everything in the heart. There seems to be no distance between the heart and the tongue. Thoughts on the outside suddenly. And we kid and say, wait, was that my outside voice? Yeah, it was. 
Action has a few barriers. It has a few shields. There's some insulation, some steps like canal locks that have to be opened for you to act many times. But the heart just spills out of the tongue, unvarnished, unprotected, unsanitized, with no makeup, no editing. That's why to work on the tongue gets to the heart. And to get to the tongue, you have to get to the heart. And so Jesus tells us this. He doesn't say, uh, just change your speech. He says, you've got to become a good person. You've got to become a different person. And this is encouraging because the new covenant is all about heart change. I will put my word in your heart. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, I will put my fear in your heart. Or Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. See, everything's oriented to the heart change that he brings about. Even the word repentance, it's, it has that word meta change, but it's not meta poieo, or that is do differently, or meta ergazomai, which is to work differently, but it's metanoia, mind. Okay? Change of mind, noia, where we get noodle. No, I'm just kidding about that, but. <clears throat> <laughs> but it's a change of mind, a change of heart. That's what repentance is. It's not repentance unless it's inside out. And the great thing is that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God to grant repentance. That is good news. He grants repentance. He grants a heart change. And that's the only hope we have of new words coming out of our mouths. I want to say this up front. So, though it is true that a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul, Proverbs 18, God rescues us from this. We tend to think somehow that what we say, that the roadway was not from my heart. Somehow it went beside my heart. You know, here's my pure, unsullied, beautiful, wouldn't hurt a flea heart that doesn't hate anybody. And somehow, somewhere, this word came out of that. It wasn't me. It didn't have anything to do with me. That's not who I am. It was a Martian invasion. You know, what? We'd like to say sometimes, it was Tourette's, sorry, I'm infected with it, you know. But it's my heart showing itself. It's my heart showing itself. It's my heart, it's my heart. So, bridle though here, I want to say something that I think is important. And this is to guard us men who might think that we bridle our tongues well because we never talk at home, right? It, hold me, hold, hold on, ladies. Here we go. <laughs> no. But you see, a man can, think, can say almost nothing to his wife and thinks that he, he could say, well, I'm bridling my tongue. I hardly ever speak to her. But bridling in this instance would mean that I'm bridling it, bringing it under control, 
so that it becomes an instrument of kindness and grace and tenderness and servanthood. That's bridling your tongue. So that it becomes, uh, so that I ask her about her day. I ask her about her feelings. I ask her about the things she's facing. I express gratitude. I compliment her. I share my heart. I respond with sympathy. You can positively be sinful by not talking to your wife, by showing that you really don't want to talk to your wife. And you really want to seal that deal of confusion and hurt and tempt her to bitterness and resentment. Don't talk to her, but still be with her at night. That's a great combo. To say in one way, I want you, I want to know you and understand you and sympathize with you and be a part of you. That's what intimacy communicates. But then in another way with words say, nah, not really. And so usually we say you need to back up your words with action. But here I would say you need to back up your actions with words. Kindness, tenderness, interest. Excitement, gratitude, admiration. These words should nourish and relieve and comfort and touch and encourage your wife. And so bridling our tongues for positive words is just as hard and every bit as important as bridling our tongues from negative words. But think if that was our concentration every day, asking as the psalmist does at the end of Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. To realize the weakness that we have in believing Jesus when he says in John 15, 5, you can do nothing apart from me, but also expecting Christ that he will enable me to do all things through his strength, as Paul says in Philippians 4. So, not counting on my strength, but really counting on Christ's strength, relying on His new life in me through the Holy Spirit, um, then be used as an instrument of good. So, just that note that bridling includes the positive use of our tongues as well. And as he talks about bridling a horse or a ship, it's not so much control in the end as direction, right? It determines the direction of the horse. The tongue determines, in a way, the direction of your life. Even ultimately, he would say, as he says in chapter 1, that the one who does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, he says his religion is worthless. His destiny is not heaven. If he's not bridling his tongue, if this is not a part of his life, to, to be governed in a way by the Holy Spirit that affects his speech. And so uh, the tongue, if it's not re- restrained, uh, the rest of our life is likely to set the same course. Yes, it does set the same course. <clears throat> and so though he emphasizes to begin with the positive there's implied in both of these the negative that could occur if the horse is not bridled, if the, if the ship does not, is not driven. And then that becomes even more apparent, and he opens up that whole side of the negative uh, with the mention of fire, right? So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And then he speaks of the forest set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is little, 
but it's a great strength. And as McCartney says, it's especially capable of evil. This seems to be James' point here. It's especially capable of evil. Uh, It's interesting that flames are called tongues in many languages because they resemble tongues. They flicker and they make noise and they do damage. And as McCartney also says, the tongue is an instrument of speech and it can set the heart of flame with fury or patriotic fervor or courage or love or hate and it can inflict damage that goes on for generations. Again, death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's interesting when he says how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. He uses the same word in the Greek and it's a word that just stands for extremes, and the context tells you which. So literally, it reads like this. What uh, such a blaze or or such a fire and such a forest. This is though to say the tiniest little spark, what a great forest. Or perhaps it's the hillside brush that exists in uh, Palestine that can just be burned up in a moment. It's used often to speak of uh, fires used often to speak of, of speech, like Proverbs sixteen twenty seven. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Gossip is especially spoken of in terms of fire. Proverbs twenty six twenty. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there's no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling. So here's this wildfire. And somebody, though, builds a trench. Somebody builds a big swath and cuts away so that the the fire won't jump. And it's the person that refuses to pass on the gossip, that refuses to participate. He says, that's when the fire stops, when the gossip stops. And he goes on to say, How great a forest is set ablaze, the tongue is a fire, and then a world of unrighteousness. I think the better translation, because the uh, definite article is used here, the world of unrighteousness, or the unrighteous world. And world in James is always used of that part of humanity uh, that is opposed to God, that refuses God, that walks away from God, that disobeys God, that is unlike God. Here's the startling point here. The wicked world establishes a presence in the body by way of the tongue. The tongue is the world, the unrighteous world put in us, so to speak. He's using that simile, that that metaphor, saying that the, the wicked world establishes a presence in us by way of the tongue. It's like our tongue is the world's in into our life. It's, it's beachhead. It's kind of gateway, the base of operations within our lives so that our tongue has this kind of symbiotic relationship with the world. The world finds its connection through the tongue. The world breaks into our lives through the tongue. It's so easy for us to be like the world with our tongue. That's James' point. So the tongue, our tongue becomes this staging ground, right? The staging ground for the unrighteous world. 
Mayer says it's like the enemy agent within God's rightful kingdom, a ready tool for the disposal of God's enemy. And when he says it is set among our members, it doesn't mean just your limbs, although that's literally what it means, but the, the member stands for the whole of our capacity, the whole of who we are. And so Motir says the tongue is inflammatory of all our capacities, doing its utmost to make them organs of a whole cosmos of evil that is hostile to God. Now, obviously, our tongue, like every other part of us, belongs to God, but he's saying it so easily turns out, it so easily becomes, it falls in line with the world. And that's why he, he says it stains. It, it stains the whole of our lives. It's interesting in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1, he says, we're to keep ourselves unstained by the world. But it's through the tongue that the world stains us. Same word, but the, the negative there in chapter 1. And so it said the tongue affects in a man the defilement that is inerrant in the world. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 15. We, we talked about this is where his disciples weren't washing their hands in the proper way before they ate. And so the Pharisees said they defile themselves. And here's Jesus' answer to that. It's not what uh, goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Like you eat something and don't wash yourself right and, and then you get sin in your life this way. You become defiled. He says, no, it's what go, not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's the heart-tongue connection that can stain the whole life that defiles us. And it sets on fire the whole course of our life, the whole range of human life, and perhaps even beyond our life, beyond our life around us and beyond our life in further generations. The point is that words can have an ever-widening circle of destruction, generating evil over and over. And then, as if this was not enough, he says, and it's set on fire by hell. Hell stands for its eventual inhabitant, the devil. Okay? It's not like hell as a place sets you on fire, but it stands for Satan himself. And he uses the word Gehenna, which is only used in the New Testament by Jesus. And so, as many places, it shows James uh, how close he is to the words of Christ in so many ways. But this Gehenna stands for the Valley of Hinnon, which you've heard much about, was the place of child sacrifice next to Jerusalem. And it became a garbage dump, a a dumping of human bodies from uh, foreign powers. And interestingly, he first says that the tongue is anti-God because it's the unrighteous world. And then he says, hey, yeah, and it's also pro-Satan. Or it tends to be. It can so easily be. And it can happen even when you think you're doing something good. Like Peter, right? 
pulls Jesus off. He, he pulls Jesus off to the side after Jesus talks about the fact that he's going to die. And he says, he rebukes Jesus and tells him, you, you don't need to, to speak like this. And you know well the words of Jesus as he said, get behind me, not Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. There's, there's an example, right, that the tongue is set on fire by hell. That it's a way that Satan lays hold of us and uses this part of us. And so he goes on that it is untamable. Uh, he, he, he describes every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature. This is from Genesis 1, recalling the fact that man has dominion over all of life. And the ancient world was very proud and would talk about that, of how every animal of every kind, look what we've done with lions and tigers and elephants and all these animals. We've brought them under our control. And James says, yes, we brought everything under our control, but no human being can tame this. Powerful point. It means untamable, and it's a restless evil. It's always, uh, Phillips translates it, always liable to break out. As David says, it probably in, indicates, too, the instability and lack of single-mindedness of the tongue, because this is the same word used in chapter 1 when he says of a man who is double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. So that the tongue, it's hard for it to keep to its single purpose. That's what makes it unstable, right? And and this anticipates what he's going to say. And on the one hand, we bless God. On the other hand, we curse people. And from the same thing, uh, with the same opening, have fresh water, salt water, fig tree produce grapes, uh, uh, olives, etc. No. And so he's leading up to that, how hard it is to be consistent, isn't it? It's like the tongue has ADD. It can't stick to tasks. It can't stick to love. You, you do great with your kids one day, and then the next day, you completely blow it. You, you do well with your wife that night and the next morning before work. You completely blow it. Or it's just one morning to an afternoon or one minute to the next. So inconsistent. It's so unstable. And he says, no human being can tame it. Full of poison, restless evil. And then it does this great thing. It, it, you know, we think it's such a blasphemy when people take God's name in vain, and it is. Or to blaspheme the name of Christ. And we can roll out protests even, and perhaps we should, but... Then we turn around and blast and demean and gossip about and slander and mock and spit out hate about those made in His image as we walk away from our protest. And and James has this kind of reaction that you have when you hear that somebody who's entrusted with the care of children has abused those children. You just think, no, that it cannot be. It cannot be. That's the sense of this word which is... Here only in the New Testament, what James says here. These things ought not to be. There's no way this is right. This incongruity of life. And it concerns how you think about people and how you talk to others about people and how you talk to people yourself. 
to really believe they're made in the image of God. I should have some sense of awe about every person because they're made in the image of God. What I do to that person is a reflection of what I do to God. How I love or hate that person is how I love or hate God. So John can say in 1 John 4, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Well, it certainly shows the need to give this area over to our great God because of its inconsistency, because two things tend to come out of it at the same time. How encouraging that Jesus can say in John 7 that he who believes in me from his innermost being flow rivers of living water. This, to me, is one of the most striking images that that seems to me, of course, it points to every part of your life that is changed. And it's changed at the root and then it flows out in all the good that we do. But certainly that's graphic and illustrative of it changes our speech. He, he gets to the root of who we are and will change the way we think and live and feel and love and desire. He will change us from the inside out. He promises. And, and the, what's the qualification? He who believes in me. That's it. He who helplessly trusts me to save him and rescue him. That's what we need, right? To recognize our sin. To recognize the problem with our tongue. That it is powerful and influential. It can be a staging area for the world. It's an especially easy target for Satan. It's lethal, unstable, toxic, untamable, subversive. Oh, Lord God. Lord God, save me from my tongue. You can understand the psalmist's prayer. Psalm 141.3 Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. See, asking a sovereign God, sovereign God to do what he can't do. That's what we must have. Sovereign God to change us from the inside out. And this is a great thing to concentrate on because James says, as you concentrate on this most central area of your life, it begins to move the whole of your life. If you're, if you're really changing in the way you love other people and those closest to you, the way you speak to them, you're getting to the heart of who you are, the heart of your issues and problems and fears and pride. May God give this to us. He works beyond what we're able to even think or imagine, according to Paul. May He do so in our life. And I would say to you, if you don't belong to Christ, if you don't belong to God, the Word of God would say, your life and your tongue basically belongs to the enemy as a way of life. Won't you bring it to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Oh Lord, gracious King, you who were perfect in all of your speech. You who for our sake came and took upon flesh, yourself flesh, and Lord, you lived out a perfect life and you spoke perfect, glorious words at all times. It is our hope, it is our salvation that you were pure, 
that your righteousness can be associated with us and become our righteousness as we stand in your righteousness. And Lord, all the sins of our tongue, we can confess before you and know that you make us clean, absolutely clean, as white as snow. You wash us. No, Lord, by your Holy Spirit dwelling in our innermost being, taking hold of us, you really do transform us. And in transforming us, you transform our words. May we husbands, we may the wives, may mothers and fathers, may children who so easily speak evil to one another, may all of us, Lord, be humble. May we come to you and say, Lord, make my speech like Jesus. Make my speech, Lord, to be pure and clean in your sight. More and more, make me like Christ. Lord, thank you that this is what you are doing, informing us from glory to glory to the image of Christ by your great Holy Spirit. Bless us, we pray for Jesus' sake. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away